Today we're having another one of our FAQ Sundays, right? Frequently Asked Questions Sundays. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I like to do this periodically because, um, as I often say, I am up here and I answer a lot of questions, but I'm uh, acutely aware that I might be answering questions that no one is asking, so I want to make sure that I'm at least addressing some things that, that people might be curious about. And instead of focusing on a couple of questions together, uh, what we're going to be doing is taking a deeper dive into one specific question that was submitted a few months ago about angels. And as I was thinking about this conversation, I thought it would be helpful for us to take a step back and try to do a little bit more of an overview uh, on angels and, um, you know, help us refine our theology a little bit. And I, in some sense, I feel like I've bitten off a whole heck of a lot here this morning. Uh, there are a lot of cultural pictures that have skewed our understanding of what we imagine when we think about angels. And so let me say that what I'm going to say this morning is biblical. It is based on the biblical text, but it is also somewhat based upon speculation. It's a, a biblically rooted speculation, if you will, right? because the scriptures don't give us an encyclopedia entry about angels. There's no, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, exhaustive diagrams, uh, species flow charts. Like much of the Bible, we assemble a biblical theology by trying to understand and synchronize a variety of pictures that the biblical narrative gives to us. And so feel free to take what I say this morning with a grain of salt. So here's the question that was asked. What is the role of angels in our interactions with them today? In the Old Testament, they appear often as messengers, and now we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Do we rely on them less for messages from God? So, again, that's the question. We're going to get to it at the end. But to kick things off, what I want you to do right now is take a moment, and I want you to picture in your mind an angel. Right? If I say the word angel, what comes to mind? Now, I would imagine you're probably thinking of someone dressed all in white, with wings, maybe a halo above our head. And a lot of that is the influence of the culture that we have, right? Because you might go to a cemetery, you might see a statue like that of an angel. Uh, Marvel Comics, comics, some of you know I'm a, I'm a big comic nerd. I don't, not really comics, more like MCU, but th this is a character in Marvel Cinematic, well not, he's not in the Cinematic Universe, Marvel Universe named Angel, right? Again, that's kind of what we anticipate, these like feathery wings in there. Um, although there's also works of Renaissance art that depict these little chubby babies with wings. Call them cherubs, right? We think about, and I'll, I'll circle back to cherubs about how inaccurate that is, but uh, we think about movies like It's a Wonderful Life, uh, you have second-class guardian angel Clarence Oddbody to help George with his plight. We root for him so that he can earn his wings. There's the saying from the movie, uh, George's daughter Zuzu, teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Now, if this is something that kind of piques an interest in you this morning, I want to encourage you that the Bible Project has a fantastic seven-episode series on YouTube uh, on spiritual beings. Uh, there's a fair amount of overlap between what I'm going to share and uh, what's in some of their videos, but they've got a lot, uh, a lot more information. They get into uh, the, the specifics of uh, a phrase you see a lot in the Old Testament, which is the angel of the Lord. I'm not going to be addressing that this morning, uh, but, but they have a whole video on that as well. You can just go to YouTube, search Bible Project Spiritual Beings to find it. But this morning, as we discuss 
these angelic beings, I want to think about it in three categories. And then we'll circle back and try to answer that question that was originally posed. So we'll discuss these heavenly beings as are understood as the divine council, what I think the Bible calls that, the divine council. Then we're going to separate the role of the cherubim, which we did look, we caught a glimpse of them last week, from what the Bible traditionally calls angels. I think there's a dichotomy, a distinction between those two. And then, uh, like I said, we'll, we'll circle back with trying to actually answer that question. So let's start with the d- divine council. This is a way to uh, represent the phrase that you see in the Bible frequently, which is uh, translated the host of heaven. Right? The, these are a collection of spiritual beings that were created by God in order to bring about his plans in the created order. I mean, you could kind of think about them as like God's staff team. Now, we know that God is all-powerful. He doesn't need anyone else. But one of the key characteristics we see about God is that he desires to share his authority with others. We we see the same thing reflected in the biblical creation account. God creates Adam and Eve to rule over the world, the earth that he has made. They are kind of like vice regents of his. They have authority. Now, most other uh, near ancient Near Eastern creation accounts are very different because the creation of humanity was not for the gods to share their authority with humans, but the gods created the humans to do all these undesirable tasks that they didn't want to do. Right? They were just the, the manpower. But God in his goodness is about sharing authority and responsibility. And so, so, too, I think we can see from the Bible that he has shared his authority with these heavenly beings. Now, w- one of the things that I wanted to point out, I really wasn't sure where it fit best in this, but nowhere in Scripture do we have any indication that people become angels. Let me say that again. Nowhere in the Bible is there any indication that people, once they die, become angels. This is one of these cultural myths that we believe at times because it's been repeated so often. I mean, when someone dies, there is a desire to provide hope, right? We, we hear things like, you know, heaven just got another angel. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. No, that is wrong. And, you know, humans are distinct from these heavenly beings. Uh, even when we reach our final resting place with the Lord, uh, that, that doesn't change. And, you know, I'm not really sure the best way to break up this bad theology, you know, this bad habit, because, you know, when someone's grieving at a funeral and says that, like, it's a little tone deaf to be like, well, actually, you know, that, that's, that's not the time to start lecturing them in theology. But I hope that we as a community, right, you've all heard me say this, that we're not ones that, that propagate that, that myth. Now, this staff team that God has created, we see in action in a few places in the scriptures. For instance, one of the big ones, one of the most uh, evident ones, is the beginning of the book of Job. Job chapters 1 and 2. We're we're told that these sons of God, i.e. these heavenly beings, present themselves to the Lord. And what follows is kind of a, a debate between God and the Satan as to how to best reward people on earth, specifically Job in this case, who does good. Now, we we know through the Bible that Satan is the enemy, but it's evident from this passage that God is willing to give him a voice, at least in this context, and I think presumably in others as well. In Isaiah 6, we see the angelic beings called seraphim, more on them a little bit later, 
They're the ones that take that coal from the altar and cleanse Isaiah's lips. And last week, we saw the cherubim surrounding the Lord, singing his praise, kind of like his hype team. Not, not, not that God needs a hype team, but these spiritual beings are celebrating the work that God has done in creation and in the world. They lift up their voices, just, much like we did earlier in the service, lift up their voices in song to praise the Lord. Now, just by the way, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think this motif of singing that we see in the scriptures is important. Something that isn't in the Bible, it's a part of Hebrew mythology, uh, but believes that God actually sang the universe into creation. C.S. Lewis picked this theme up in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia in, in The Magician's Nephew. In fact, I just read that chapter where Aslan, the, the Christ figure, is singing Narnia into existence to Catherine a couple days ago that we hit that chapter. J.R.R. Tolkien also has the same kind of uh, borrows from this Hebrew mythology about kind of God singing the world into existence. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a, of a fantasy nerd as well, and uh, I mean, it's fascinating, the background of Tolkien. And again, this isn't in the Bible, but I think it helps to illustrate what this might have looked like, to give us a picture in it. And in and, and the, the world of Middle-earth, the supreme being of the universe, who we would call God, uh, Tolkien named Eru. And he also creates his heavenly staff team, who are made up, they're kind of like angels, but he calls them the Anur. I probably pronounced that wrong. And one of these angelic beings goes by the name of Morgoth. Now, I don't know if any of you have watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy, movies, maybe read the books if you're a little more highbrow than I am. Uh, Amazon recently had a, a series called The Rings of Power, which kind of takes a step back a little bit. But one of the primary antagonists in those is a guy by the name of Sauron. Now, Sauron is important to this because Sauron was actually Morgoth's lieutenant. So, you know, if we think, if you've read the books or watched the movies, you think Sauron's bad, right? Morgoth was kind of of a higher order. He was the original enemy of Eru. He was kind of like the Satan figure in Tolkien's fantasy world. Now, in the Cimmerillion, which again, I've never read, uh, that's way too complicated for, more, for me, but this Cimmerillion is what depicts this mythology that Tolkien picks up, and in it, Eru brings creation to bear through singing of melodies. And these other kind of angelic beings join in song with all these harmonies, complementing Eru's melodies. But Morgoth, again, the one who is kind of like Satan, is jealous. And so what does he do is he begins to sing a discordant melody. Right? He invites others to, to sing his own tune that he is kind of launching in rebellion against Eru until he's finally cast out of the heavenly realms. Like I said, granted, that was written in the 20th century uh, by a, a, a man, but it might be a creative way to just imagine what these, uh, th this heavenly staff team, what that might look like in, these, in the heavenly realm, and especially God, how he might share his authority with others. So if we think about this heavenly staff team, this divine council, let's now move to highlight the distinctions between what the Bible calls cherubim and what the Bible more classically defines as angels. Now, cherubim are not little chubby babies with wings. I'm not entirely sure like where that came up uh, in things. Uh, one of the, um, 
I, I mean, I remember growing up, we had actually a picture that was very similar to the one that I put up on the screen. It was like in one of our bathrooms. Uh, I remember seeing that. And, and um, I, again, I don't know where it came from. Some speculate that maybe it was Donatello in the, not, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, but the Renaissance painter who, uh, who you know, who first kind of coined this. I, again, I'm not sure where it came from, but it's, it's not at all what we would see in the, the, the picture, right, in the Bible. Right? Because trying to put together a precise picture of the cherubim are very difficult. Because while this word cherubim occurs quite frequently in the scriptures, which we're going to get to in a minute, there are few of those places that actually give any kind of detail as to what they look like. Probably the best examples are Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14, and Ezekiel 10, 9 through 15. I'm not going to read them because they're pretty lengthy passages, but it describes Ezekiel's uh, vision that he had. And they describe these weird kind of human animals, hybrids that have wings. They're surrounded by all these concentric. I mean, I've read that passage so many times and I still can't kind of wrap my mind around what they precisely look like, right? They're covered in eyes. Ezekiel labels these beings that he sees as the cherubim. Similar descriptions of these kind of living beings, these, these creatures, are, um, are found in the passage that we looked at last week, Revelation 4, 6 through 8. So trying to piece together a mental picture from them is hard because there's, there's not even alignment. You know, sometimes they say they have six wings, sometimes they say they have four wings, right? They, they have like these different, you know, uh, an ox, a lion, a man, an eagle, or some of the faces of them, but, you know, each passage, it, it changes just a little bit. And so it's hard to f- really nail down what they look like. But this word, cherubim, occurs very, very frequently in the Old Testament. Right, from the er- opening chapters of Genesis, right, the f- by the third chapter of the Bible, right? We know the story. Adam and Eve, they sinned. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And what, what does God do? He places a cherubim in front of the entrance to keep them from getting back in. When we see the construction of the, temp- the tabernacle and later the temple, there were commands to engrave cherubim into the Ark of the Covenant, the walls, the tapestries of the building. So what is their purpose? Psalm 99.1 tells us this, that God sits enthroned upon the cherubim. These animal, human, angelic, hybrid creatures carry the throne of God. This is what you see in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, See the same kind of language in, in Revelation 4 that these beings are kind of somehow connected to the throne of God. This is why the Ark of the Covenant had cherubim engraved upon it because the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be the footstool of the throne of God. It wasn't God's throne, but it was kind of that place that he, he rests his feet upon. Right? You, couldn't, you, you couldn't represent God's presence with anything physical without breaking the second commandment to not fashion an idol, but that ark of God was designed by God to Moses to serve as this tangible expression of his presence by not representing him with anything physical, but again, the footstool of his throne. As I said a moment ago, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for disobedience, but in God's plan for restoration and redemption, he selects a people, the people of Israel, to be his chosen people to bless the world through them. And so the tabernacle and later the temple were meant to be these mini representations of the Garden of Eden, 
right? That place in the world where God's physical presence dwelled, just like he did in Eden. And so when we see cherubim described in the Bible, we're to understand that they are the guardians of the space between heaven and earth, right? The place where these worlds intersect. When we encounter them, when all the biblical authors encountered them, it signified that you're entering into the presence of God, something that shouldn't have been done lightly. In some ways, you know, the, the, um, the cherubim there placed at the outside of the garden, you know, it's kind of like, well, doesn't God love people? Doesn't he just want them to come back in? Right? So, so some people think that it's like God being this like ter- grumpy old territorial man, you know, erecting a fence around his property, and it's like the cherubim is his guard dog to keep them out. And, and, and we have to understand that the presence of the cherubim was not for God's benefit, but was for Adam and Eve's benefit. Because had Adam and Eve in their sinful state, tried to re-enter the garden, re-enter that full presence of God, it would have been fatal for them. So the guardian was for their protection in that way. When we see these experiences, we understand, when we, we, when we encounter the, these beings in the scriptures, we're to understand that we're entering into the presence of God. Now, closely associated with the cherubim are these beings called seraphim. And, and, you know, last week we sang the song, that classic hymn, Holy, 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 and it says that the cherubim and the seraphim fall down before him. Starting around the 6th century, there was this hierarchy of angels that was created, which describes the nine different orders. I, I don't even remember them all. Cherubim is the highest, seraphim, there's like guardian, archangels, angels, principalities, powers. I don't know. I mean, these are all like biblical terms, but I'm not quite sure how they chose how to rank them. Um, But that hierarchy separates cherubim from seraphim. And I'm I'm not actually sure that that's correct. I'm I'm going a little bit on a limb here. Um, But the only place that we see the seraphim mentioned is in Isaiah 6. And again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not reading any of these texts just because a lot of them are very long. If you want to jot them down and look at them afterwards, if you have any questions, let me know. But it's in Isaiah's encounter in the throne room of God. And like I said, the seraphim are the ones that take that coal and place it upon his lips. Now that word seraphim is often translated as, in Hebrew, burning ones. But Tim Mackey of the Bible Project argues that seraphim are actually a type of cherubim. This is complex, and I know that I'm kind of like operating really cerebral here today, um, but trying to help us, like I said, refine our theology. I'm going to try to break it down. So a cherubim were these kind of odd animal-human-angelic hybrids that surrounded God, and the word seraphim actually in Hebrew is very closely aligned with the Hebrew word for serpent. So you could translate seraphim as winged or flying serpents. Now, Ezekiel 28, I'm jumping all over the place. Ezekiel 28 is part of a statement of judgment against the king of Tyre, but many see this language in this judgment as perhaps having a a second meaning, meaning describing the, the creation, hubris, and fall of Satan. Ezekiel 28, 14 says this, quote, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. So if this is about Satan, and he was 
one of the cherubim. And the opening chapters of the scriptures describe Satan as a serpent in the garden, then I think what follows is that perhaps Satan is one of these cherubim who was formed as a serpent-angel hybrid. Again, the seraphim that we see in Isaiah 6. Again, it'd be like, what difference does this make? In some sense, it doesn't make any difference to, to our everyday life. I mean, unless you encounter a cherubim, which that is be highly unlikely, but hey, it, it could always happen. Uh, but I think it's important for us, where it is important, is to just understand. How do, we, how do we connect the dots between what's going on in the scriptures? Now, I was sharing this with a small group a, a couple months ago, actually, this same piece about the seraphim, and Dan responds like, all right, so flying serpents. So you're like, you're telling me there's dragons in heaven. I was like, I guess I, guess I am. I mean, Revelation says that. Satan is described as a dragon there. So we've seen these, these cherubim and seraphim, you know, as the, the part of the divine counsel of God, responsible for carrying his throne, kind of singing his praise, you know, marking the entrance into his presence. But what about kind of all the other angels? What does the Bible say about them? Now, I believe that the common encounter with angels that you see in the Bible are very different from the beings that I just described. Angels, for starters, in the Bible, do not have wings, let me say that again. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels have wings. Again, unless you, I mean, angels is kind of like a, it's like a rectangle square type thing, right? Like all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. We, we call the seraphim and cherubim angels. But again, when the Bible says angels, I don't think that's usually what they have in view in there. So angels in the Bible don't have wings. And so you can throw out most of the art that you see depicting angels because they're anatomically inaccurate. But what we see in the scriptures is that these angels are usually mistaken for people. Think about Joshua encountering the commander of the Lord's armies before the fall of Jericho. I think it's Joshua 6. He's described as a man with a sword drawn. In the Gospels, Mary and Joseph were each visited by angels to announce the conception of Jesus Christ. Peter is rescued from prison by an angel in Acts 12. In these instances, there is encouragement to not be afraid. Now, but I don't think that's because they're these like terrifying, you know, six wings covered in eyes, you know, a, a, a picture of, angel, of, of cherubim that we see. But because these angels were very imposing people. Again, in Joshua, the, the, the guy's got a sword drawn. He's kind of like, whose side are you on? I mean, if I was sleeping in my bed and an angel appeared to me next to my bed, I'd be a little terrified too, just because there's an intruder in my house. But the writer of Hebrews encourages the believers to pr practice hospitality because the author says, Hebrews 13 two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Right? What Hebrews, the author of Hebrews argues is that we may have already been in the presence of angels and not even known it. So what I'm suggesting is what we traditionally understand as angels are dif different and distinct from these cherubim and seraphim. While the latter are responsible for symbolizing the entry into the presence of God, what we understand to be angels have a different role. Their, their purpose is to be spiritual ambassadors. They're to be God's messengers. 
In fact, the Greek word for angel, ankylos, means literally messenger. In these occurrences where humans have interactions with angels, the angels were to serve as guides to help humanity be reunited with God's purposes around them. They share news of joy, like to the shepherds after the birth of Jesus. They give hope and encouragement, like Gabriel did to Mary. The prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 has a a powerful visit with an angel, and the purpose of that visit is to help him uh, understand and record what is coming up for his people while they're in exile and beyond that exile. I mean, we see some elements of spiritual battle going on in that uh, in, in Joshua 5 as well as, as Daniel chapter 10, right? That chapter I just referenced of Daniel describes the angel. The, the angel that comes to visit Daniel says, man, I had a hard time getting to you, right? The, the prince of Persia, probably another kind of angelic, um, you know, I wouldn't say angel, maybe more demon, was, was preventing me from getting here. And if it wasn't for Michael kind of coming through, drawing a line, I wouldn't be here right now. So again, we, we see some of this Uh, the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And so to recap, you know, angels are messengers of God. They're ambassadors of his kingdom sent here to encourage and help the saints connect to God's plan in the world. So having said that, let me try to answer the question that was asked. So to, to summarize it for you, to remind you all of what it is, do we still encounter angels today? Right? What's implicit in the question is that since we have the Holy Spirit residing with us, are angels now unnecessary because God dwells within us? Now, in my opinion, the answer to the question, I would argue, is that God still uses, yes, God still uses angels even in the age we live in with this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's some evidence for that biblically. First, in some of the scriptures that I referenced this morning, Peter was freed by the angels, or by an angel, in Acts chapter 12, which was after the day of Pentecost, which is where that filling of the Holy Spirit. So Peter had the Holy Spirit with him in, in, in that prison cell, but God still sent an angel uh, to, to go there. Right? That, that author of Hebrews reminds us that we may be interacting with angels without even knowing it. To me, that indicates kind of a normalization of that there are angels among us. But in addition to this, I think it fits with the character of God that I shared earlier, that even with that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God shares his authority with others. God is capable of doing everything, but just like he entrusts in us with his work on earth, he continues to share his authority and his responsibility with these angelic creatures. They're the ones who are those ambassadors between the physical and heavenly realms. Now, I can't, with any degree of certainty, tell you how to spot an angel. Like I said before, it's entirely plausible that you may have experienced one, encountered one, and not even known it. A good friend of mine uh, allowed me to share her story of angelic happenstance. And I wish I could have, Sarah was listening to some of this last night because she voice recorded it all for me. And I wish I, I was like, maybe I can edit it. But it was like 16 minutes long. And there's a, a lot of, she gave a lot of the medical details of what was going on around the story that was not necessarily uh, uh, about this particular piece. But um, my friend's name is Kathy Emmons. If any of you listen to uh, The Ride Home with John and Kathy at 4 o'clock on Word FM, um, she's, she's one of the hosts of that show. And Kathy describes a visit to Shadyside Hospital many years ago. 
Uh, her, her mom was at that point in time at the pinnacle of health. Um, her mom actually just passed away a couple of months ago, I believe. Uh, but, but at that time, you know, she was really good. Um, but Kathy one morning gets a phone call from her dad saying that her mom wasn't feeling well. And so Kathy, you know, drove over to their house and Kathy's mom is out of it. Like she doesn't even know what day it is. Like the way Kathy describes it is it, it almost seemed like she was intoxicated. And so Kathy's, you know, fear is probably naturally what a lot of us would be like, oh my gosh, my mom is having a stroke. So she takes her to the hospital, takes her to Shadyside Hospital to have a CT scan. And in the recording, several times by this point in time, Kathy impresses upon me like just how incredibly disconcerting this whole experience was for her. Right? She, she described herself as being emotionally terrified. But then it goes to another level because while she's helping her mom out of the car into the wheelchair there at the ER, her mom then has a seizure as well. So Kathy's mom, they, they get her back into the hospital. She has her CT scan. They come back to the admission room and, and the hospital's going to admit her. Um, and so once again, in her retelling, Kathy recounts that both she and her dad are emotionally wrecked by this. So Kathy's preparing to push her over the, the glass skywalk be, that's, that kind of connects the hospital. She says that she's feeling disengaged from her body and is completely overwhelmed in this moment. So as they, she turns to, to take this um, wheelchair down the skywalk, Kathy describes what she has an, an odd experience. She describes that there were people standing on both sides of the walkway, right, both on the left and the right-hand side, and they were all, all of them were facing her and her dad, and I guess her mom, too, in a wheelchair. And she said that they were kind of like, the way she recounted them, were kind of like guides or ushers who would be working at a hospital. And she, she doesn't distinctly remember their arms being out, but she got this sense that they were pointing her of which way to go. And she says, and I quote, it was weird, but it was also very comforting. It felt like somebody was there to help, and we weren't alone. And then they cross this walkway and turn down the next hallway to stop at an ATM again. She's like, I don't even remember why we stopped at the ATM. But the person in front of them turned around, and Kathy describes him as a man with, quote, an encouraging, wonderful face. And she said in that moment that she had a fleeting thought, my gosh, these are angels. And then a split second later, a fleeting thought that that first thought was crazy, is what she said. But she kind of tucked it in her mind to return to it later. And she says, you know, m many of the other details around the story have faded from her memory, but that walk across the skywalk is etched in her mind. Um, just to kind of close, give some closure to the story. After being in the hospital for the few days, it turned out her mom didn't have a stroke, but was having, she was having frequent seizures because she was, had undiagnosed celiac disease. This is kind of when celiac disease was not something that was, was really known um, a couple decades ago. Um, but Kathy, to this day, says that she can't say for sure whether or not they were angels. But that experience nonetheless transformed her because it gave her an opportunity to open her mind to the supernatural work of God in her midst. Because she, she comes, I mean, she's a Presbyterian, has been a Presbyterian for a really long time, and that tradition has a tendency to focus a little bit more on the studying of Bible, the acquisition of knowledge. And, and that experience helped her understand that God was not a math problem to be solved, but that there are unexplainable supernatural things that happen.
Many times she thinks back to her experience and draws a great sense of comfort and what she says is humility, that God is different and wonderful in ways that she had not previously known. I don't know. I don't know if those figures that she saw were angels or not. It's plausible. But I wanted to use it as a story I, many years ago. In fact, I texted her earlier this week, and I was like, can you refresh my memory? Can you like, give me a, a, a type up, a, a brief recap of the, your angel story? And she's like, I didn't even know I told you that story, because it was many, it was a, couple, a decade at least ago. And uh, so she did. She, I was grateful that she was willing to put that all together for me. Um, but I wanted to include it because I wanted to give us at least a, a, a context for what those experiences might be like. And I know, I know this morning was a lot of biblical theology. We were all over the place. You know, your, your, your eyes may have already rolled into the back of your head, but my hope here was that we have a little bit more of a precise understanding of what the Bible teaches about angels. Because right, we, we have a lot of cultural images, cultural influences that come to mind that I, I don't think are very accurate. So what does the Bible have to say about it? But then to take that to another step of getting to some, some, something closer to application that we would be open to the supernatural work of God in our lives. That we would be open to the possibility that we, we might be, as, as the author of Hebrews says, entertaining angels. That we might be, God might be using someone in our life, whether maybe it's someone we, we think is a person, but is actually an angel to give a sense of comfort and encouragement at difficult times. So as, as my, my, typically my, uh, my tradition, um, I want to give you some questions to ponder this week uh, as you go. So the first is this, what of this discourse was new to you, and what did you, and I'll put this as always on Facebook and the website, uh, what did you agree and disagree with and why? And it's totally okay. If you want to disagree with me and be like, Chris is out of his mind, uh, that's fine. You, 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 can, you can hold to that. Um, you know, it, we just need to make sure we have biblical understandings of these things. And I may, have, I may be interpreting it incorrectly. Uh, and, and frankly, the, the, the kind of that theological sparring that takes place is helpful because it helps us to refine and shape our theology in important ways. So if, if you disagree, that's fine. You can it won't hurt my feelings. Um, secondly, oh, just went away. Let's try that again. Here we go. <laughs> How do you think you would react if you were in the presence of one of those cherubim? I mean, I think they're, they're terrifying, seemingly terrifying creatures. How do you think you'd react? In fact, let's take it a step further. How would you react? And then go and read how the, uh, the, 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 the biblical authors who did have those encounters react, just to see if you would be the same. And the last is this, like, you know, if we, I want to open our eyes to the possibility that angels are among us, that we might interact with them, you know, that, that stranger on the bus, or I don't know, the, I'm not thinking of any other good examples, but those other places that you go where uh, people you don't know are, um, you know, think back on your experience. Is there, is there a place in particular that kind of God has shaped, used someone, a stranger, to shape you? Uh, is it possible that, that they were, uh, they were divine, you know, not, maybe not divine like God, but a spiritual, supernatural uh, encounter. So anyway, those are some things to think about. Uh, let me pray. We got one more song, and then we'll eat some food.
Let's pray. God, thanks so much for all that you have done in our lives and that you don't leave us to our own devices. You walk with us on the path of life uh, and that you do send guides, tour guides, to help us connect with you. Uh, may we have those, those, in many ways, like the, um, oh gosh, the servant of Elisha experience. When we might feel like we are alone, we might feel like we are entra- uh, uh, you know, trapped, that you would kind of pull back the veil of our eyes to the spiritual realm and we would see these beings that support us and go with us, accomplishing your purposes here on earth. And so God, we uh, lift this time up to you to the praise of your name. In that name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.